Chapter 11 of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 11. Martin upon Reality. En cette jonction et en cette joie advient souvent de grand bonheur à l'homme, aimant mystérieux et secrète merveille des trésors de vin sont manifestées et découvertes. Rose Black, l'admirable, l'ornement des noces spirituelles. From this disposition, from this joy, man's great good fortune so often derives, many mysteries, many secret marvels are manifested, and divine secrets uncovered. Jean van Roysbroek was a Flemish mystic of the 14th century. He brought them late at night by an invisible path to the point at which they could see their village close beneath them. He wrapped the sleepy Vera in his old and faded plaid and carried her down the fell, saying, Though my name is Martin, we will not divide the cloak tonight. At the first hint of field and road he parted from them and turned again toward his friendly hills and the watchful lamp which was before the shrine. It was during this last solitary stage of their descent that the watcher, returning to his long-abandoned mood of mockery, almost as if he, too, were overtired, had whispered within Miss Tyrell's mind certain bitter, surprising, and contemptuous words. So, he said, it appears that you know too much to be deceived by reality when at last you meet it. It is well indeed that they have fed you with illusion since... This is all that you are able to digest, the killing, eating, earning, quarreling, the meaningless wriggles of life. That is acceptable, it seems, but not the idea. It is offered to you. It is present. It penetrates your very modes of being. Even in the adventures of your body you may meet it face to face. But you prefer the more rational illusions, fashion, and morality, and the intellectual life. I have laughed tonight, real laughter, which is another thing than your disordered mirth. One of you, I suppose, once knew of it, the one who spoke about the laughter of the gods. You have cherished the phrase, and the man. You thought it clever, did you not? Is it clever to perceive one's own humiliation in perspective? She, made meek by the experiences of the day, said, Oh, I know that I am blind and limited, but why were you able to apprehend something wonderful there? Then he replied more gently, Because I have dwelt always within it. Although, till I had sunk into life, I did not notice, did not understand. Seen against the darkness, one can hardly fail to recognize the light. This was but an ill preparation for the return to practical matters, to their lodging, and to an agitated landlady in whom abruptly relieved anxiety effervesced as wrath of a quality difficult to appease. Constance's assurance as to the safety of the pony was received with distrust, and her apparent inability to describe its present whereabouts did but exacerbate the situation. As a fact, it had been left in Martin's care, with an undertaking that she should go herself the next day to retrieve it. Martin had said, I dare not risk discovery by your village. 
It is full of summer visitors who go to and fro seeking what secret beauty they may destroy. They call it an object for a walk. They would think that my hidden treasure house was very quaint, and the more cultured and pestilent amongst them would write descriptions of it and publish them in the Spectator and the Westminster Gazette. As it is, the place is well concealed. I have passed many summers in safety. Do not betray me. That were a treachery to two worlds. She, seeing in vision with a housewife's eye the necessary general shop, the soap and soda, pepper, sugar, rice, and also the flour mill and the weekly butcher's cart, which certainly could never climb the fell, said to him, How do you manage if you never come? He replied, I have another route, over the hills and far away to a little, lonely, uncommunicative place. There the people accept my existence and wish to know no more. Hill folk have so little curiosity, their own concerns suffice them. I go down amongst them, lend a hand if there is need, buy what I require, and back again by the sheep tracks. No one thinks it worth while to follow and question me. A taste for solitude is no novelty in the North. They are well accustomed to dour folk, ill-tempered anchorites and people stowed away in odd nooks. Likely enough, I am catalogued as daft. But were I sick and asked help, they would give it. You see, they have wintered me and summered me many a time, and I am part of their landscape now. Part of hers, too, he was destined to become though the fitting of him was a matter of hard pushing and urgent faith. When she woke upon the following morning and looked round her attic bedroom, where relics of medieval discomfort were mitigated by an aggressive wallpaper and chromoliths of the Good Shepherd, Mother's Sweetheart, and the Coronation of Edward the Seventh, she seemed far indeed from the austere chapel in the fells. How could a sensible and industrious woman whose investigations of philosophy had ranged from Aristotle to Schopenhauer, find room in her consciousness for that incredible cup, its fantastic guardian. True, she found room there for the more impossible watcher, but the camel, as usual, had left little place for the gnat. The watcher, after all, came from another universe where anything might happen and anything be true. But Martin's claim involved the readjustment of a dimension as to which she had already made up her mind. Although she would have repudiated scholasticism with a violence which was proper to her education, she was still a dualist at heart. Vera slept hard after her adventure, and Constance left her in bed, dressed, and descended to the presence of a landlord whose low opinion of Londoners had been confirmed by yesterday's performance. She breakfasted in haste and discomfort, being one of those who can ill-endure the disapproval of their inferiors. But there was an encouraging voice within which said to her, Dear friend, why let yourself be troubled? Are we not going back to the real? As she came out in her short skirt and tam o'shanter, she met the postman and received from him a fat letter in a hand that she did not know. She took it with her to read upon the way, and at the first halt after the sharp, hot scramble which put a patch of heather between her and the cultivated land, she sat upon a boulder and spread it on her knee. The letter was from Mrs. Reed, one of those lengthy and intimate letters which are produced not by overpowering affection, but by long periods of leisure enjoyed in an uncongenial spot. It was dated from the Villa Medici boarding establishment, Sand Hill on Sea, 
a place which, as Mrs. Reed observed in her opening paragraphs, had no soul and not even a desirable body, being but the dreary evolutionary product of golf, gasworks, and red brick. Of course, she said, it is all Maya, illusion, nevertheless. I own that an inexpressible disgust makes me sad when I see nature playing the Piccadilly harlot by the sea with the added horror of a deliberate winsomeness. Here one perceives the educative influence of phenomena in its negative aspect, the materialistic qualities of the modern seaside resort producing its appropriate population. I see young men and young women who have no thought beyond the sphere of Malkuth, in whom the universal medicine has never worked. They rush to and fro without hats, and did they but know it, also without hope. All their dreams, all their ideals, are concerned with physical things, the movement of muscles and the touching of lips. Fortunately, the air is very good and my husband benefits. He spends many hours daily in a bath chair upon the promenade. You, I hope, are climbing happily the letter of dream in the lovely arena of the north, for I am sure that you were born with a vision that can look upon the stars. Are they not the eyes of Isis, the maternal one? And are not our illusions a progress to her arms? There is no one here to whom one can talk, and I spend much time in preparing the lectures for my autumn class, the Egyptian underworld as an English overbelief. Mr. and Mrs. Vince passed through the town in their motor the other day, en route for the South Downs and Arundel, I think, but they only remained a few hours with us. He was very healthy and wore mud-colored clothes marked with grease. Is it a sin against the light to say that this seemed appropriate? He spoke of carburetors and appeared to be happy. As for Muriel, she wore her dear look of detachment, but such a holiday, I think, can mean little to her. Within this sublime heart of things, all must, of course, be unity, one knows it, but it is hard to realize the absolute at Sandhill. Constance put the letter in her pocket, and from the height upon which she was poised dipped dreamily into that other life. She had been conscious of an egoistic pang when she came upon the image of Andrew so far away, enjoying himself so completely. She had no point of contact with that prosperous and modern life which he took for granted, with hotels and motor-cars, all the imperative claims of petrol-tanks, maps, lunch-basket, the delightful intricacies of cylinders and speeds. Hence these things seemed to lift him far from her sphere, to constitute a slur upon their friendship. Muriel, tied up in soft veils and whisked through the air, his hands upon the steering wheel, the one barrier between her exquisite body and death, could hardly fail to be warmed to something like womanhood by such a contact with the simple elements of life. Each, drawn closer to the other, was probably drawn farther from her. A gloomy idea indeed for the woman outside their life who had learned to depend on them. Andrew, between his carburetor and his darling, with outlets for every energy, holding life by each hand, must be far from the mood in which he had said to her, I'm lonely, it's just that. And awakened by this cruel appeal, a sympathy that he did not really need. She looked sorrowfully at the hills, which were gray, cold, and sad, 
and at the close roof of trees lying tufty beneath her. She got up with a sigh, for existence had again become arduous. She had ceased to acquiesce. Then she turned to the ascent, and the watcher once more raised his head, plumed himself as it were. He understood now the dignity and joy of energy, of earth, moving on earth, spirit driving it, mental concepts and determinations realized, if only in the dust. But the odd entanglements of humanity were still beyond him, as we, whilst we feed, exercise, and cherish our pet animals, hardly extend our sympathy to their friendships, love affairs, and hidden griefs. Hence his friend, when she turned to her fellow creatures, still turned from him, and whilst he was grieved by her troubles, he offered his condolences at a threshold which he might not cross. The sheep track which she followed took her around the village of the hill and behind a knoll that hid the village from her sight. Then she stepped quickly from the credible to the actual, being hemmed in by the barren and majestic earth, roofed by a very gentle morning sky, beckoned on by the first glimpse of a tiny gable peering above the heathered slope. She knew that in another instance she would see the little window and the faint glimmer of its ritual light. She felt like a traveler whose feet have come to the brink of a fairy ring, who, remembering the magic which invests it in the dusk, hesitates even in the daylight to cross a frontier which may delimitate that country from which no wanderer returns unchanged. She completed the ascent of the last little hillock and saw beneath her the chapel in its dell. Martin was feeding his chickens. He wore tweed knickerbockers and looked fresh, brisk, and British. The pony stood near, comfortably tethered upon a patch of appetizing ground. It was as simple, as ordinary, and yet as unfamiliar as Snow White's housekeeping might have seemed to a casual tourist happening upon the cottage in the wood. Martin glanced upward. He evidently possessed the hermit's instinct for those delicate noises which herald the approach of new life. When he saw her standing on the hill, he smiled at her and cried, Wait, I am coming to show you the easy way down. She watched him as he came up the steep and invisible track with that effortless stride of a being whose powers are perfectly adjusted to his needs. When he was at her side, he said, Well, in the morning light, I wondered whether I had dreamed you. You, I suppose, were quite sure that you had dreamed me. Acknowledge that you are difficult. That remark connotes rather a severe self-criticism, doesn't it? Oh, no, she said. I am justified. Consider, all your circumstances are so strange. You have so long been parted from the world that you forget. This chapel, for instance, serving no village, no farm even, all by itself in the pathless hills, who could have conceived of its existence? It is unreasonable and yet appropriate, like Mallory, perhaps, but not like life. He replied, it is like unspoiled life the life of the West and the North, and the wild and ardent hearts which they have bred. These secret little chapels that they build, desolate places alone in the wilds far from any habitation, are they unreasonable? To say so were cynicism indeed. They were meant to serve God, not man, to offer, not to ask. 
"'Tis the Celtic spirit, I think, the austere sentiment of lonely adoration. One sees the same thing in Brittany, you know. Cornwall has yet the wrecks of one or two, but she does not use them, of course. Her Methodism finds a nicer nook between the grocer's shop and the police station. As for this place, I found it one day in my wanderings, a forgotten ruin so miserable that it was not even picturesque. The door was broken down, and sheep came in for shelter. I bring them here still in the winter, when the snow is very deep. Into the church? exclaimed Constance. She had considerable reverence for the externals of religion in which she did not believe. Yes, into the church. Why not? I cannot think that the lamb would refuse a roof to his poor relations in their need. He who was born in a stable must be very patient with the habits of the beasts. Of course, I clean up after them. One likes the work. It brings Bethlehem to the English hills. Once a little lamb was born here, right before the altar. That was a wonderful night, nature at work renewing the eternal symbols. The snow was so deep that everything was very silent, but I heard the Gloria in the air. She stared at him in growing discomfort. Her doubt as to his sanity had returned. He said, Oh, yes, of course it seems mad. I know that. But do not be afraid. My manias are quite harmless. There was no other way for me, nor will there be for you, I think, once you have grasped. The world has come to that point in its perversion of reality at which one can hardly be natural unless one is insane. I am not the first person, after all, who has tried to domicile the truths of one plane in the symbols of another. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? Do you remember that? Blake knew as he knew all things. He who touched the sky with his finger would not have been surprised. She said, I don't understand one bit. It is like hearing the Middle Ages through a gramophone. The watcher asked her anxiously, Is that a patch of time when men were near the real? She answered in confusion, Perhaps, I do not know. They descended to the chapel, and again with shaking heart she entered the door and knelt down. Then her lodger, as if friendship itself must give way before this mighty opportunity, seized her mind, her powers, in his old passionate spirit of domination. He threw himself, as it were, and these with him, humble, eager, and full of joy, at the feet of that power which had been brought to a point in this place. By her side another spirit rose beyond him, transfigured, made ardent, by that same vivid and penetrating love. When they were come out, she said to Martin, Ah, what is it? What is it? There is more here than any mere relic, any dead symbol, I think. He answered in the voice of one who tells his dearest secret, Yes, you are in a lover's lair. And what is it, this elusive thing you love? The watcher whispered, Why, the idea! What else could one love? Martin, to her surprise, corroborated him, saying, Your mind is still clouded by practical things, 
the breath of the world has tarnished it. If it were not so, you could hardly help but see, for the elusive thing which you have such difficulty in accepting is just the one thing that truly exists. As for loving it, am I not a priest? And are not all priests in their essence just lovers, deeply in love, but only with ideas? And she, thinking of the ministers of many denominations which she had met in the course of her work, could not agree with him. Oh, yes, they are, he said, at least the real ones, and the others do not count. I'll tell you the life of a priest. He watches and waits and serves the beloved thing and steals his heart against the misery of seeing it despised and rejected of men. And after a time it happens that he cannot bear the waiting and the watching any more. And so he runs away with his darling to a desert and a secret place, there to enter into possession of his joy. That is the story of the hermits, and of many and many a person who is supposed to have a morbid hatred of his kind. Humanity is insulted and says bitter things of them, just as many a mother is insulted when her son first casts his eyes upon a woman and wants to leave his home and make a nest for her somewhere in the world. He feels the impulse, he knows he has got to go, and so do we. It is the next stage to leave the mother of all of us and turn from her to the one and only love for whose possession she has raised us up. And is that what brought you here? Yes. Even before I found the cup, I think that I was destined to come. Sometimes down there I dreamed I was a poet, and then suddenly I woke and knew that I was a parson. One couldn't combine them. So I aped St. Francis, stripped off my clerical clothes, and went wandering. Because I was detached, my destiny came. The love token was put into my hand, and I was forced to find a nook where I might hide it. He broke off and looked at her with authority. You are judging me, he said. But why shouldn't I act thus? I defy you to say why I should not have done it. You she retorted, are judging me, and through me the race, and why, pray, should not I have done it? How can I say, you have not unveiled your idol? She answered, her name is life, but unbelievers have another word for that aspect to which I made my oblation. Was it a happy love? She glanced back and then said, no, not really only exciting. Since I have seen you, and because you are sharp-edged and simple, I know that my worship fell short. It was ugly and had no shape. Oh, no, he said with great gentleness. If it was worship, it could not have been ugly. You may have seen it in ugly terms, of course. Wasn't that it? Real worship is always beautiful. The eternal object of it sees to that. But we when we would judge what we are doing, we'll mix ourselves up with the picture. We do not stand far enough away, she interrupted him. But there is no standing far away when it's life. That is the terrible part. One lives up to that religion. It is no mere academic creed. One must plunge in, bathe in it. It is like the initiation of Mithra. Every adept must be baptized in the hot, 
horrible torrent of blood, endure it to the dregs. Sometimes, you know, that leaves a stain, an unexpected stain, which cannot be effaced. The sharp blue eyes looked at her, and then he answered quietly, I know, it is horribly painful, but not in the least criminal, of course. My initiation, she said, and stopped. Then she began a different subject. Did you notice the child who was with me last night? Yes, an animal thing. That's all right. There are many such up here. They are left over. They linger in the corner. Sometimes they are fresh created by mistake. She was. Ah, well, you must not be fastidious. Your goddess is not always in her best bib and tucker. Cannot be always on her knees. She must work and sometimes soil her hands in the process. As for me, because I have lived close to the breeding earth for many years, I have been taught to abandon that delicacy which demands a constant crop of lilies, but cannot tolerate manure. It is all so splendid, so holy. Oh, it really is, even one's own experience. The true lover, I fancy, can afford to see his mistress at the dustbin, and love her none the less, and so it is with life, with God. That's different. No, not really. Right through existence, from beginning to end, and in every relation, one always, as a matter of fact, loves in the same way. Thinking of the foolish enthusiasms of the past, she said, No. Uh, I hope not. Oh, yes. But we do, he answered. Why, isn't that just our job, to get the little loves right, so that the big love may be in order too? Ordina questa more, o tu che mami. Friend, lover, toy, ambition, and sacramental divinity, we really turn the same face to them all. Watch a woman with her sweetheart, and you may guess pretty accurately her attitude to her God, don't you know? Some love in gusts of overpowering devotion, and some steadily and quietly, like a well-trimmed flame. Some give, give, give all the while, and never ask back. These, I think, are already divine. Some cry, love me, only show that you love me. Just that, every minute of the day. Some love sternly, sulkily, but unquenchably. They turn the arrows of Eros upon themselves and wound themselves cruelly, drawing the barbs through their flesh with a strange, fierce joy. And that which each does in the human relation will govern his action toward the absolute, too. She looked at him, rather puzzled. I never thought of it that way, she said. The watcher stirred within her and muttered, Of course! It is a training ground, a school. What else could it possibly be? The idea must be there, underneath. Why did I not perceive that before? This, then, is the meaning of the foolish and deluded human loves. Martin went on. You see, all that, the joining up of things, the matching of the outside with the inner meaning, one learns in these quiet places as nowhere else. In the cities it is difficult and confusing, but here the silence helps it, and the meek determination of the earth. 
when one is quite alone, one hears it say so many beautiful things. This is the secret of that contempt of the bustling, practical world which comes with such great simplicity to the saints. I think I shall never quite forget the cleansing of my own eyes on the day that I brought the cup to its home. It was a grey morning and misty, the sky was soft, and behind its softness one divined a gleam. All the world seemed a little different, I thought. I was so warmed towards it by that which I held to my breast. I wondered to myself, what was its place in that love, and how near the dutiful and patient plants, the little simple beasts, were drawn to him. Then I looked up and knew, for I saw across the meadows and the forests the majestic figure of a priest, who passed to and fro with unhurried steps, and fed his creatures, some with bitter bread and some with sweet. All the flowers spread their corollas at his coming, all the little creatures raised soft faces and opened trustful mouths for the receiving of this host and it was of their substance and of his. Now I see this God, this priest, in all his aspects. I see him laughing in the riot of Dionysus did. I find him passionate as a lover in the oratory, austere as a judge in the confessional, gentle as a mother at the grave. Shall I not attribute to him the same range of emotions as I find in his creation? Why limit his imminence and his effect? Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, as surely he shares our conquests and our joys. Oh, no, she said, not that. Think they are so childish, so absurd? You have no right, exclaimed Martin, thus to stigmatize the pleasures of your God. How arrogant we are, turning back upon our parents imposing our little creeds upon their source. Remember, if omnipotence enjoyed a game of marbles, he would not be less, but the game of marbles would be more. Is it not the Holy Ghost who looks through our eyes at earthly beauty and guides the hand of the artist, the bridge-builder, yes, and of the cricketer, too? Does he not exult in the tempest and taste rapture in the dance? Have you ever thought that as we can only know him in moments of ecstasy, like knowing like, so the divine life must be one long ecstasy of being, marked by the spinning of the words, and are we ever so godlike as in the moments where we abandon ourselves without condition to those rhythms of the universe? A dangerous doctrine, she said. Sometimes that abandonment breeds what the world calls sin. Yes, because the world generally judges sin backwards, by its bodily seeming, as if one could sin with the body alone. Absurd! You might as well say that your clothes could sin of themselves. The body is nothing, after all, only a little heap of dust wrapped round to hide the soul. And then, because his last words roused in her vivid and overwhelming memories, and in her lodger the ecstatic recognition of a fellow exile who really understood. She said to him suddenly, I think that I am going to tell you something. He replied, I thought you would have to when I saw you come. I know that about the body, about the dust. 
truly know it, I mean, and it has made everything seem unreal and useless except the times when I managed to forget. The watcher corrected her, saying, But has it not disclosed the real? Such knowledge anticipates death, said Martin gravely. She answered, Yes, and it comes of meddling with the fringe of things. Life was so dull, so flat, so lonely. I thought that I must have adventure, must anticipate. I could not be quiet. I longed to know. I did not think it would be real, could be. And now I am possessed by a reality from which I can never escape. If you loved it, surely you wouldn't wish to escape. I don't love it, Martin said. The things one does not love are better left alone. But I did not think that it was really there. How could I, on our sane and normal earth, where everything fits and every crevice is concealed, how could I conceive that the dust would break down at a word, a ceremony, a wish, a song, and another universe intrude? Really, he said, if your materialism was so narrow and so arrogant as that, one cannot be very sorry about its fall. I know that little knot of case-hardened and well-educated rejectors of experience from which you have come. They are like a party of old ladies sitting in the drapery department of the stores, who sees a man rush hastily through bearing a pile of tin saucepans. When he is gone, they rub their eyes and decide that he must be an hallucination, because tin saucepans have nothing to do with drapery. They forget that the universe, too, may have other departments. I can't, for my tin saucepan is always there, he said very gently. Will you not tell me? And she, drowning the clamorous voice of the watcher, who was insulted by this too sudden dip into homely metaphor, told him. The sun had broken from its morning mists, and poured radiance upon a singularly definite earth, and there, sitting in the narrow line of shade beneath the north wall of the chapel, with the delicious roughness of the heather caressing her bare hand, and in her ears the soft noise of the pony's steady munching, she related the history of her evocation and its answer, of the column of dust and its wild-eyed inhabitant, of her horror and her wavering will, of the invasion of the watcher and her bewildering dual life. As she told it, the tale assumed for her a shape that she had not perceived in it before. She apprehended a thread within it, the history of a progress for both of them, which, had she been a Darwinian, she might have explained to herself as the natural result of a changed environment. She saw clearly for the first time the slow humanizing of the watcher, which had turned him from an intruder to a friend, warm interest replacing his chill curiosity, sympathy modifying his supersensual contempt. In herself also she saw a change, the liberation within her of some thing, some power, which could dispute his dominion, could meet him on his own plane. At the ending of the tale, Martin said to her, Well, you have found a destiny. Little cause for discontent with that goddess of yours. She has treated you handsomely enough, given you no casual help from her stockpot, but served you a special plat, 
You know, I suppose, what you are in for. The saving of souls has always been looked upon as a fairly big business, but you have got something less usual than a soul to save. Do you think so? She stared at him. Think? It is obvious. But how to do it? How? Oh, don't worry about that. Just live. Your goddess has a way of solving these problems as she comes up to them. Sometimes she cuts her way, but she always does something, always goes on, always arrives. Constance replied rather sadly, It is easy to be optimistic here. Oh no, not easy. The horizon, even here, is overwide, and one sees many grievous and difficult things. But hope is one of my three duties, and without it the other two could hardly be performed. She exclaimed involuntarily, How sure you are! And this lodger of mine, he apprehends your secret. He loves it too, although I cannot find the link and understand. He replied, There is nothing odd in that, really. It belongs to his world, of course. It came to the spirits in prison as well as to the seed grounds of earth. The curious thing, the interesting aspect, is that he was forced to come here to find and recognize the liberating hand. Behind those terrible myths, how could he find it there, in symbols that deal with nothing but the most hideous animal accidents of our nature, dying, torment, and blood? Surely the real, the divine, what one longs for, what one needs is a reading of reality that shall be radiant, permanent, serene, that shall offer a promise of deathless and beautiful things. He took her by the shoulders. Poor, squeamish child, he said, go back to nature. Watch her at the eternal game of death and birth. Life, you say, is your idol? Listen to her, then, as she expounds existence. She is a difficult mistress. She offers no self-evident syllogism to the pupils that she loves. She has but one formula, and that a paradox. It is the paradox of creation, the folly of the cross. In the afternoon, as she led the pony down the hill, she knew herself, too, to be led in a new spirit of acceptance, back again from the heights to life, to work, to the constant struggle for beauty, shape, and significance. Behind her in the mountain, the light burned, and the cup rained on its little altar, remote, magical, and serene. A ray of that light went with her, illuminating certain recesses of her spirit which had lurked in the twilight till this day. As Martin bade her good-bye, he had said to her, in a low and diffident tone, yet almost with an accent of entreaty, Oh, learn to love, do please learn to love, it's such a terrible waste if you don't. You are made of the stuff that does things thoroughly, and this is the one thing which is worth doing well. These words had moved Constance strangely, making her feel humble, cowed, and ineffectual. They had even brought unwilling tears to her eyes. Somehow they reminded her of the shining tree and the more actual image of creative pain which had crossed it. They addressed themselves to that sleepy inhabitant which had roused itself at that moment to struggle for the possession of her will. 
that inhabitant took little interest in her personal wants and failures. It was eager to endure all that might be before it, eager to cooperate with life. Vera met her in the garden, joyous and muddy. Tanta, she cried, I drowned a chicken. And the mother did squeak. End of chapter 11